0: Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. I'm talking to Chris Ward, aka chrischinchilla.com. Chris is a prolific technical writer, games developer, and general amazing creative person. He has some really solid advice for how you get your documentation organized, how you start from nothing, to build it up, to give a great developer experience. And then we also talk about the trouble with having a personal profile and having a company profile, and how you manage the difference between those two things as a developer advocate. All right, Chris, let us talk. Hey, Chris, welcome. Welcome to the Fireside Fox Game podcast. Uh, you are uh, a, m- a number of different things a musician, <laughs> developer, a technical writer. Yeah. Uh, where do we start? Let's start with you're writing a book. Let's start with that.
1: Yeah, I'm in a period of transition, which is <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm writing. Uh, I just spent the past, um, oh, I don't know, eight years working in contracts, but also full time, part time roles as a, largely as a technical writer for a variety of tech companies. And I'm sort of slowly getting out of that, I think, and I'm bookending that chapter in my life with um, writing a book aimed largely at non-technical writers, um, but people who need technical writing done uh, for Pact Publishing at the moment. Um, Early days, I am currently on chapter four, out of about 10, so early days, but it should be coming out early 2024, I think.
0: Awesome. You have my you have my sympathies. <laughs>
1: oh, I, I actually uh, like writing yeah. books. Uh, I've written my first uh, fiction novel also in the past couple of years, and I'm on the second and third. I do Fabulous. actually find with writing that once you open the floodgates and you, you kind of get the the practices, the tools, the rituals that work for you, it starts to come a lot easier. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the biggest problem yeah. a lot of people have with writing is starting.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, to so start, I, totally. Yeah, yeah. I've I, I yes, and I mean, and that applies to everything. I'm I'm currently yeah. doing the second edition of my book, and yeah. a lot of that is just editing, even just yeah. going over old chapters, and even just starting yeah. is the hard bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't mind the whole revision process. I, I kind of enjoy it. It, it. I think just knowing when to stop with revising is the biggest problem. Oh yeah, But yeah. Actually, it's kind of enjoyable because you start to tie the ideas together. I, I am what they call a Uh, a pantser not a plotter i don't tend to overthink things i just go for it and then um and then you kind of revisit what you've done and you think huh that's okay oh that actually works with that what the earth is that you know (laughs) yeah i mean that is that is a decent strategy right just
0: bang it onto the page and off you go okay so let us separate the content of your book which we'll come back to yep because it is also very relevant and the uh project of writing the book itself because a lot of people who end up working in developer relations uh do end up thinking about writing books or indeed writing them because it's a natural part of mm-hmm. uh you know growing your career and establishing your audience and all that sort of stuff um so oh uh, let's start with this the, the big question right? what's your advice on on writing a writing a uh, not a non-fiction book right let's 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 Mm. make sure we're focused on that because uh, a nonfiction book is for a professional audience and has a particular type of style and and approach. So, you know, day
1: one, how do you,
0: (laughs) what do you do? How do you write a book?
1: Well, I kind of already alluded to it, but you just start. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, there are many, Fabulous. many tools and, and and various things you could sit there agonizing over what's the best choice and all this kind of thing, but none of them will actually help you get um, I can't think of a better th- phrase to say, but pen to paper. obviously that's not what anybody does anymore. Um, but uh, key to key to screen. I'm not sure. It doesn't sound as good, does it? No, um, no. I think uh, I think especially with nonfiction, And especially with technical books, we have to be honest, most technical books do not actually sell in massive numbers. No, they do not. No, You do not write them for the money. You write them for expertise, to be uh, a thought leader, to be identified as an expert in that field, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to really be – has to be a subject you're prepared then to talk about afterwards. My first nonfiction book was actually a – responsive web design book when I was still the editor of a mobile channel. And to be honest with you, by the time the book came out, I was over that subject and Mm -hmm. I didn't do the book any justice. So that's something to be wary of. A book takes a while. So make sure it's a subject that you're willing to continue talking about in Eighteen months' time, I think is. is
0: yeah, or, or 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 five years, down the line. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. even. Yeah, cause, uh, did you? I mean, did you have yeah. to do a, a proposal for the current book?
1: No, I've actually been quite lucky so far with yeah. all my non-fiction that publishers have come to me. It's the complete opposite. Of fiction where fiction you pour your heart out and then you spend six months pouring your heart out to agents and publishers convincing them to do something whereas with nonfiction I have found that they tend to come to you but of course the rewards for successful workers we've talked about are less yeah um, but the process is quite different I do have some ideas in my head that I will do next that I think will be a proposal process But I'm also lucky enough that with a handful of fairly well-known tech publishers, I already have a reputation with them. I've done editing and reviews for at least three of fairly well-known tech book publishers. So I kind of have an established relationship, which helps me personally a little bit. Um, But also staff change. So just because I had a relationship with someone there a year ago doesn't mean they're still there, but it helps a little. Um, Yeah. But I have some more esoteric ideas as well that I think will definitely need proposals and sometimes a proposal also just helps you I, I kind of said I'm a, a pantser, but I think sometimes a proposal helps you actually think about is this actually a book or is this just a blog post you know <laughs> it's, yeah it's yeah yeah which <laughs> that's a fair point there are great many business
0: books that would be better off as articles I yeah think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean what 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 I think it's it's important for anyone listening to this who's thinking you know I need to write a book or I'd like to mm but I haven't the first clue where to start. So you make an important point that the technical publishers often scout and approach people. Mm-hmm. And if you do go to a book proposal, uh, it's much different from, as you say, fiction, because you yep. they're looking for content all the time. Yep. Uh, they know, uh, let us be honest, that on a per hour basis, this is going to be less than the minimum wage, right? Yep. <laughs> you're not doing it for the immediate money. Yep. Uh, so the, the chances that you can get a book proposal accepted, are much higher than you'd think, right?
1: They are. I think unless it's a subject that's already been covered a lot yeah. or it's a subject they've already done and it wasn't very popular or they do some market research and there's just no market for it. And to be honest with you, like a tech writing book is one of those where the publisher we're dealing with um, had to have a think about it because it's, it's a niche topic, to be fair.
0: Now, I would argue I would argue the yeah. case there a little bit. But we'll,
1: we'll get back to that. <laughs> we'll get back to that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, oh, well, I mean yeah <laughs> yeah okay i get i think i get you <laughs> so,
0: yeah i mean yeah so i okay well let's dive into that the the and i think that that gives us a good segue into discussing the content of the book anyway which yeah. is technical writing so my position on that would be uh with the rise of developer relations as an activity and with the rise in the number of developer tools companies developer mm-hmm. focus companies and with many just ordinary business SaaS companies having APIs and SDKs now, the ability to execute developer relations is critical to a lot of businesses. And that means lots of content and that means lots yeah. of technical writing.
1: For sure. That is definitely true. But the the number of people who do it and the number of people who legitimately value it is on the lower side. It is one thing I have faced over and over again and, um, I am trying to find ways to put this bluntly but positively in the book of saying that if you start a career in tech writing, developer relations, you will endlessly meet people who tell you how valuable you are and what you do is, but don't treat you like that.
0: Yeah, I, I <laughs> and yet, and yet, the difference that it makes. I mean, yeah, just just to, just to think about this historically, right? So, okay, there were a lot of reasons why the C programming language was popular, but one of them has to be the Kernigan and Ritchie book, and mm-hmm. the way that it was so succinct and so well written. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and you could argue, you could argue the same for Pearl. And I mean, this is showing this is showing my age, yeah. Now, right? But the, the Camel book by Larry
1: is, I mean, was so ama- such an amazing piece of writing. It's, uh, it's interesting you say that because um, there are definitely classic technical books. Yes, that made some of those people and made many other people's careers. But I, I do worry and wonder: Can you think of that many recently? Uh, and that's that's a concern. Maybe, it is, a, but,
0: yeah, it it is. Like, yeah. where where are, where are those where are those fantastic texts like, that we can all? I would I argue
1: on? the only one that jumps to my head immediately, and it's a very different beast, is the Rust book. I haven't read I that. Ooh, okay. That's it's a not recommendation. You like yeah. to read from cover to cover. But it's no. very interesting because it's, it's not written by one person. And it actually the interesting thing with Rust from a documentation perspective as well is it actually ships with the product. However you install Rust, you get the quote unquote book. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very good example. Rust as an entire project is actually a very good example of developer experience actually.
0: Um, yeah, because they have all these challenges. You, you've got to figure out how to do all this borrowing stuff. And there's a new way to manage memories with all these new paradigms and mental models you have to build in the user, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I'm going to check that out. Okay, good recommendation. Yeah, no,
1: it's definitely, it's, it's kind of uh, one of the ones that's there. Um, I would also argue that I think, interestingly, and, and i showing my age here. I graduated in 2004, nearly 20 years ago. And I was a year late. So, (laughs) Um, and even in my first year of uni, we were told to go and buy a bunch of textbooks and really didn't need them. And even then, we could find a lot of what we needed online. So, I think, especially in computing science, computer science, the ways people gather access information has changed quite a lot, and we are at the forefront of a completely new way at the moment, of course. Um, And books serve their purpose, but I don't know how many people learn from reading a book anymore. Uh, It's hard to say. I mean, they're still being published, of course, so they can't be completely gone. But I don't know how many people would find books like career-changing anymore. I'm not sure. And if they are, they tend to be the more higher-level ones, like you know uh books that kind of defined patterns like um, microservices and event driven development and these yeah are,
0: they're more they're, they're more conceptual as well,
1: yeah. But yeah they're more they're more patterns and paradigm changing where um, you can also argue things like white papers yeah um, which can be long No one would call them a book but they're long pieces of content i was at a presentation last night where the presenter was referencing basically the white paper that described uh, transformers, you know, the T in GPT, mm. um, and how interesting he found that to really understand what's what's happening behind the scenes of these things. So you Ooh, know, that's so okay. Still that's a, another definitely. <laughs>
0: that's <there's laughs> another ways. one to to have a, a to have a look at. Yeah. I mean, isn't it true though that the, the the primary way that a developer now learns something is is through the documentation, the API documentation. Right. If you're going to if you're going to learn if you're using AWS, you're reading the AWS docs primarily, right, rather than a specific mm. book. Now, I, I, ironically, I did learn how to use AWS from uh, Jeff Barr's original book back in the day. But yeah. nowadays, for all the new services, you, you you're kind of just it's kind of bite-sized chunks of what you spe- are specifically trying to um, trying to do. What do you so what do you make of the technical writing of Amazon's documentation? You know, where they have lots of little articles. All right.
1: Okay, I gotta be careful here. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are flies. We are we are
0: we are we're not even mosquitoes on the back of a because very large elephant. They don't care.
1: <laughs> I will say I have generally found the entire developer experience of AWS to be not great. Um, there are reasons for that. Actually, uh there there are two, two, two largely different practices in tech writing uh you could kind of split worlds down the middle and how stuff is documented that roughly fit into the era when a product comes from and aws having been around for a while actually falls into one of the 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 older way and it in my mind it sometimes shows um mm. that they almost kind of tried to recreate uh an in-app help system on a web page uh and yeah, without going into the the details of what that means from a, a tech writing perspective, uh, I think sometimes it shows in that often a lot of the uh, and AWS now has become such a large collection of products that it gets. I find it very disconnected sometimes when you're trying to solve problems. Um, you get bounced around all over the place, and and some of the design behind it influences that. You know, you you want to go and set product. A up, but in order to set up product A, you have to configure B, C, connect them through D, uh, output it to F. And, you know, so you end up yeah. with this. Yeah. I would sometimes argue that if AWS S launched now, it mm-hmm. wouldn't be as successful because it, it kind of comes from a slightly older origin story. Whereas things like uh, Google Cloud, for example, I find much, much easier to get started with. Um, so, in some respects, I would say that you saying. You found it easier to you learn better through a book. Kind of makes sense because it was filling in the gaps that its documentation doesn't do, um, maybe, and maybe that's the reason between the, between behind the origin of some of these books is that they were kind of filling in those gaps that documentation didn't traditionally do, and now kind of does. But right. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, look, I mean, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, right? So let's yeah. say. Let's just put ourselves into the shoes of a startup founder, and we've just launched a developer tools company that does I don't know if they gives you a authentication and a login form or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm either one of the founders or I'm the very first developer advocate hired by the company, and yeah. there's Virtually no documentation, um, yeah. you know, a couple of blog posts and some very sparse uh, swagger docs, maybe or something like that. And now you're tasked with producing quite a significant volume over time of technical mm-hmm. writing to mm-hmm. help onboard developers. Mm-hmm. But you've never really done technical writing before, and you've been hired or you were the founder because you could code. Mm-hmm. So starting from literally no training but having to do it on the job uh how would you coach someone what's your advice
1: i think i have uh two different areas where i would coach one would be uh one would be what to what to create and one would be then how so the what. I would say when you're just trying to, and I've worked at plenty of startups, so I'm gonna be realistic here and say, of course, you know, you should do everything before you, but you can't, that's impossible. That's not gonna happen. Um, So what I'd say is you start at two ends. You start at two extreme ends. You start with a getting started, how to show people the best your new product has to offer. Um, If you have an intended use case, great. If it's a very general purpose tool and you're not really sure what the use case is going to be yet, okay, that's a little harder, but you probably have a rough idea. Um, Try to pick a practical use case that is reasonable. Don't pick what I would call a, a toy use case. You know, if if someone reads that documentation and thinks this product's great, but this example is just so ridiculously basic, I can't yeah. see how this benefits me. So try to find that balance. And that's a whole other conversation, but you know, just to give you the, the highlights. So create a getting started guide that, uh, and this is something that DevRel people also focus on a lot, of course. This uh, time to getting started, this um, time to first API call, whatever it may be. Uh, get people seeing why your product is as good as you say it is. Uh, let the product talk for itself. Then, I would also then say go to the other end and produce reference material. There's a high likelihood you can auto-generate a lot of this from code, from spec files, from SDK stubs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not going to be great, but it shows those people who want to just go and dig beneath the surface and figure it out themselves. It shows them all the tools in the toolbox and then they can figure out how to use them and how to apply them together if they want to. So you help people see why your product is good, you see people how it's built, and then slowly, over time, you can fill in the middle because the middle is really actually where you'll spend the longest time and always be iterating. So you can't expect to get it right on day one because you won't even have it right on day 200 so slowly fill that in um and that's kind of been my general approach on that side uh the how is more of a linguistic thing and this is actually the some of what i'm writing in the book chapter at the moment and i've had a few uh, presentations you can probably find online somewhere uh that i've done around um documentation, crash courses for developers, you know, 101, whatever you want to call it. And there's a few linguistic and grammatical tricks I tend to point out to people. A lot of technical writing, what you really want to do is make your writing more confident. There's actually some wonderful advice on this from from fiction writers as well. Stephen King's book has some really good uh, recommendations on this from a completely different perspective. Oh, yes, Yeah. yeah. As do a few other books as well. Actually, most of these books were written in the 70s and 80s and nothing has really changed. Um, And a lot of it is about making your writing confident. A lot of people tend to fill their writing with all sorts of grammatical um, sugar that is not necessary, makes the writing complicated and makes people reading it think, I don't really know if this is what they say is like I don't actually know if I believe them or not. Um, yeah. and actually fixing a lot of that is is quite easy, and and th- saying things like "quite easy" is one of the things you want to get rid of. But anyway, <laughs> well, yeah, so I was going to ask you: Do you have do do, do do some simple examples come to mind? So, yeah, like, this so is good. This is bad. Right? There's things of sort of getting rid of all these these what's called weasel words. Is one just do this? It's easy. It's simple. Don't say things like that. Firstly, because if you, uh, if 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 someone follows it, and they, okay, maybe I'll say that again. If someone follows it, you know the, the 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 ins and outs of your product better than anybody. So of course you think everything's obvious. But someone coming to it completely fresh doesn't think that. May not have the same background as you. May not have the same thought process as you. Saying something is easy. And then them finding it not is just going to either make them feel stupid, think the product doesn't work, or many other reasons. I've always said you should let the quality of the product speak for itself. You don't need to point out how good it is. Um, Right. People should figure that out themselves. Then there's other things like active versus passive voice. And all of this just helps. And consistency and other grammatical tricks just help Every little thing you can do helps remove that uh, cognitive overhead that people need to go through to understand what you are explaining to them. Because fundamentally, they're there to understand what it is you're trying to explain to them. They're not there trying to understand how clever you are at writing, how clever your code is, how much money you've raised. Sure, that's something they will think about. But that is not documentation's job to convince them of, to stick to the nice, clear uncluttered explanation of what it is they want to accomplish and that sounds very easy (laughs) but actually there's a lot of little things we have a tendency to do without thinking that make it more and more cluttered and complex for people to understand and it's one of those strange things it's like getting a, a reasonable microphone when you want to make an audio recording you use your inbuilt microphone and you think oh it sounds fine then you use a better microphone and you think, oh, my God, I sounded terrible. And it's, it's like that with, uh, with a lot of writing. You know, most people, especially in English, can write reasonably good copy. It's fine. And then you get someone who, to show you, who shows you how to make it better and you reread it and you think, oh, wow, that's so much better. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Like these, it's just these little things that can just really lift something from being good to being really good. Um, and it's not hard actually it just sometimes requires you to people to point them out to you it's like code and everything you know you can code you can write an algorithm that works and then can someone someone could show you to write an algorithm that shines yeah yeah, yeah.
0: okay let's uh, let, let's also talk about another challenge that uh, people in developer relations face which is um you can you can get pretty lucky and you can have a a, a normal job mm-hmm. as a developer advocate or part of a developer relations team in a larger company. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people also work freelance. Mm-hmm. So they are helping startups mostly with mm-hmm. building their uh, content, that sort of stuff, building communities. And you have quite a bit of experience in that mode of operation as well. So any advice for <laughs> But the developer advocate who wants, I don't know, some people like to be independent, right? Some people like to be freelance. Um, mm-hmm. Is that, a, is, you know, how do you manage that life? What, what, what are your painful learnings? I, I have many right. myself. Yes.
1: <laughs> I, to be honest with you, I think I have the best piece of advice is a very simple one. Um, and it's one I've repeated a few times. And I think it could carry you a long way throughout everything else and that is respect your value and the flip side of that is most people sorry the the flip side of that is that the people who disrespect you the least which we can probably summarize into pay you the least will waste your time the most if yeah. they don't value you they will not value your time or your expertise uh, and It's difficult because when you're beginning, of course, you don't really know what you're worth. You don't really feel confident enough to push for higher things. Maybe you're just desperate for work. But there does come a point where you could start to be more selective. And sometimes if you have the the experience, the fortune, whatever it may be to start from that point, then do it. It filters people out. Um, And if you ever are in a process where someone is trying to push you down, they're generally a customer who's worth avoiding to be honest with you, unless you're being completely ridiculous with what you're asking for, but you're probably not.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I think that is, I think that is really, really, yeah, you've you've hit the nail on the head, so to speak. That is really the critical thing to realize, which is, uh, you know, there's a saying, I can't remember who said it, but this, um, someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. And that is, Completely yeah. true with clients, right? Because if they start nickel and diming you on day one, they're just going to be difficult the whole way through. Oh, and I think Pretty much. Yeah. you can also—you're yeah. allowed to fire a client. Yeah, right. You don't have yeah. to keep
1: working for them. Yeah. Um, no, for sure, for sure. That's that's definitely something that's worth considering. Um, yeah, and it, it's hard. It is hard when you are when you're starting out. Because you probably need the money. I think whenever you make a big career change, especially well not, not when you're beginning, of course, that's a big career change It's hard to prepare for, but if you're making a big career change, have a little bit in the in the war chest as it as it were, to protect you from well, protect you from time wasters, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, to get the best you can out of it, I guess. Yeah. Um
0: And do you have any advice on finding clients? I mean that's that, often the way often the reason people yeah. end up with bad with bad clients is they they're having trouble selling their wares
1: yeah in in honesty, the only advice i have ever really had for anything that involves you getting out there and being found is you have to market yourself um how you do that has has changed, and um I remember actually bizarrely one of the best kind of anecdotes I can recall for for what does and doesn't work is when I was unbewittingly a professional musician, which was people would say to me, "How did you get successful? What did you do? What was what was the what was the, <laughs> the secret formula?" Yes. <laughs> there isn't one. There isn't a secret formula. But you have to just try everything and you see what works. If you try nothing, then nothing's going to work. Um, and you know, and I think, especially these days, we're surrounded by people on Medium and Substack and LinkedIn telling us how overnight they just sold a hundred thousand copies of something, and we know that we, we all know that's yeah. really not true.
0: And well, this, also, I mean, yeah, you know, you know, I mean, I think it's very discouraging for people it, just starting it, out it, to see all these these kind of Twitter BSers who are going, "Oh, yeah. I got so much revenue in six months, and this is how, this is how I did it." Yeah,
1: they were hey, seriously. For it's for all it for months. Or, yeah. you know, I mean, even if even if it's real, like
0: even if it's real, <laughs> the thing that they're talking about is not what they're selling. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, they're selling, yeah. they're selling, them, they're selling them themselves and the fact that they can. Yeah, exactly, you know, Charge exactly, you money exactly. for consulting or something. A like that.
1: A, those are called pyramid schemes. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, um, so, yeah, I think if you're not prepared to put yourself out there. I'm not saying there isn't freelance work for you, but it will be harder. And we're talking about developer relations. I, I think these are people who are willing to put themselves out there. I don't think we have to say you that. Well, there's different levels of that for various reasons and various justifications. But I also think there's more ways to put yourself out there without putting yourself out there. So, so Well,
0: this is yeah. okay. So this is, you, you've touched on, a, on an interesting little side topic. So if you are working as a developer advocate, often part of your value is the fact that you have built up an audience. Now, mm-hmm. whether that's off the back of, of content for a specific company, or you've written a book, mm-hmm. or just you—you you know, your personal blog has a lot of good technical content or whatever, and you've done a whole bunch of conference talks. But there is a separation, isn't there, between your developer advocate persona and the specific company. Mm. that you work for uh now i guess if you're freelance maybe it's not just possibly not so much tension there because you're seen as, as being as, as having been brought in and and external mm. but you're generating valuable content mm. but if you work for a company um and your identity gets a little bit wrapped up in that how do you balance that that how do you balance it because you, you're, you're going to need to take that persona to the next company right
1: Yeah, I I will admit I've struggled a little bit with that. Yeah. Uh, And it's sort of why I've gone back to contracting slash um, even transitioning out of contracting into doing my thing is I realize I have a strong-ish or developing personality identity that often companies think they want, but often what... But you are and what they want are not always connected. And, you know, when you're swallowed into the machine, as it were, sometimes you have to compromise in different directions and that does and doesn't work for some people. Uh, And when you freelance, you, of course, have the opportunity to... You can choose a bit, but in some respects it changes because you're also... You may also not even be acknowledged for what you've done for them. I don't. I'm not entirely sure with freelance um, developer relations work because obviously it's very much more you, whereas documentation can be a bit anonymous sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, if you make a video or something like that, it's sort of clear it to you. But it's, yeah. I don't know. There's 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 people who can make it work for them. And there's people who 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 can't. And I'm not honestly sure if I actually have an answer to this question in all honesty. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. It's a tricky one. And I think I'm still figuring it out myself. I think I've just got to a point in my career where I realize I have to be me. And yeah. I need to figure out what that's going to mean. Because I have had too many places where I go in as Chris to a company. And... What I think of as Chris and what the company thinks of as Chris is not entirely compatible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I get frustrated with it. Other people can can kind of go with it more, but for whatever reason, I I get sort of frustrated. And then that, you know, that starts to um, grate in in both directions. um,
0: Yeah. Because, like, you see, you know let's take the example of a, of a like a Twitter account right so mm-hmm. an ordinary developer might have a personal Twitter account where they talk about rugby or whatever mm-hmm. right and then um, if you're a developer advocate your, your Twitter account and talking about the technical stuff and posting pictures of your your talks at conferences or whatever is, is mm-hmm. part of the job mm-hmm. but at the same time then you you have posts about your personal political opinions or something like that yeah and that's yeah. where it gets so you see some people are just it's all out there everything right the company stuff the personal stuff it's, it's all one big mishmash yeah uh, And then you have yeah. some people where yeah. their twitter accounts is always just professional um so people yeah. are seem to be approaching it in different ways right
1: yeah i've actually been thinking about this a little bit recently from a different perspective with my kind of especially my um uh, fiction work. I've met some people. I actually run a writers group here in in Berlin. Uh, we have people from all um, all flavors of writer and professional level. And there's one guy I met recently who makes a living out of basically self publishing on on Amazon uh, KDP, Kindle Direct Publisher. Yeah. Yeah. And he does it under multiple personalities. He has a name that is a romance writer. He has a name that is a gay romance writer. He has a name that is a horror writer. Right. And he has a name where he puts kind of what he actually wants to write. So he And he just pumps it out to all these different personalities. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, do I want to take that path or do I want to always be me? And every aspect of me that is me is just out there. And I think I have to be the latter.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 fair, fair play to that guy. And I mean, I, yeah, maybe it is a bit yeah. more normal for writers, for sure, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think I uh, have to be the I, latter. Yeah, and it's so much work. And, and to be fair, <laughs> well,
1: in a professional, like non-fiction writing perspective, of course, that you will find it hard to find that combination where you can be at a company and they're okay with that, but at the same time, it's like that that freelance um, discussion we had, you will also filter out slowly the the places where it was never going to work out, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe it's a lot more, it'll take you longer to find that right fit, but you will, and it will be a much, much better in the long run. And just, I mean, just, just I for know. the, I mean, yeah, yeah. and
0: just from the company side, for anybody listening, you know, trying to deal with this problem from the company perspective. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important to remember that part of the value that a developer advocate brings is that they are a real person. They're credible for developers. Yeah. So the the downside of a few rough edges, maybe maybe it's not as terrible as you think because it shows that they are credible when they say stuff about the product yeah. because they're also talking about their dog.
1: I think we have to be very, very careful, though, is that we're talking about sort of professional and then maybe some um you know less less serious personal opinions but of course there are places where people expressing their opinions about things may be completely incompatible with your business practices we don't need to go into details but i think people can everyone knows yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. you know and 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 that is something else and of course there will still be companies that are find that fine <laughs> and are fine with it, but uh yeah, I think we have to be very careful there you know, posting pictures of your dog is not the same as yeah offensive language and, and things like yeah. that. you know that, that's yeah. different that's different so yeah
0: okay, I think we have time for one final uh, one final <laughs> kind of
1: question, which is um how does a musician end up as a coder? <laughs> It's actually pretty common, to be honest with you. So so especially in the era that I was playing in, which is the early 2000s, when the traditional model of music wasn't really working anymore. um, But the new world hadn't really happened yet. So this was the era of Myspace and um, Napster. So no one was making money for music. No, no. (laughs) Um, It's... It meant that a lot of people from that era had to find jobs afterwards. And it's not that uncommon. Uh, there's a lot of crossover between uh, these days, especially between music and coding. I think there's a, a couple of reasons. One is that uh, there is uh, some some uh, some brain science, whatever the word is, between the patterns in, in your brain that code and the patterns in your brain that make music. Music is quite I don't want to demean music, but it is—it does follow lots of patterns, and so does coding. Um, yeah. Obviously, taking those patterns and doing something creative with them is a whole other process. But fundamentally, music is quite algorithmic, so there yeah. are—they do trigger similar things in the in the brain. The other is actually practicality, uh, relating a little bit back to the freelance thing. Music pays next to zero, coding pays quite well, so. And it's, and it's quite flexible. Um, and same with music. So if you could get that combination where you work some of the time, you go out and play some of the time, and you have a degree of flexibility in terms of income and time, it's actually a very good, perfect combination in some respects. Yeah.
0: Have you ever been tempted uh, yeah. to um, I don't know, <laughs> take a guitar on stage for a talk and,
1: and do a song version?
0: <laughs> Which I have be my style. I I have seen it done. I have
1: seen yes, it done. Yes, yes, so have I. It's not really mm-hmm. my style. And there are people who do it, actually. Uh, Dylan Beatty, I think, yes, is one. Uh, Russ Miles is another. Russ crosses. Yeah. Russ so there there are that. people who do it. Yeah. There are it's definitely uh, a thing people can do, but that's not my uh, if it was to be my style, probably be more likely um which I'm actually starting to do in a lot of my YouTube videos as well, is using the the music to explain other things, other concepts. Uh, also writing the music, that kind of thing. But yeah, there are a lot of tools that directly cross over between coding and music. Um, I saw a great uh, – the the after party for um, Build Stuff in uh, Building Us last year, there was a, a duo doing – coded music uh, and electronic music is a whole other world of, of course, music that of is course. created in very different ways from traditional musicians which I'm starting to try and get my head from. I live in a city full of electronic musicians in Berlin of course um, of course yeah um, maybe so the
0: world capital of that, that yeah, sort of thing, yeah. Right? And
1: I'm still I'm just starting to appreciate that I come from very much more bunch of gut people in a, in a room playing analog instrumented to amplifiers yeah. so I'm still figuring that out myself I'm staring at the moment at MIDI keyboards and things um,
0: but are you real, tempted to go into, uh, I don't know, algorithmic music, right, where you, you write code that writes music?
1: Um, yes and no. So what I actually really want to move into from a musical perspective in the, in the coming future is more soundtracks, which is what I always wanted to do, actually, before I got distracted by yeah. bands. And uh, there's definitely depending on where you are creating soundtracks, like games, for example. A lot of it is semi-algorithmic these days. There's also wonderful tools like um, Max Live, and and many others. Also, another one from here, um, it's Adora, where you can hook music up to triggers uh, and all sorts of things like this. MIDI, I mean, MIDI itself <laughs> is a fascinating technology because MIDI is just a series of signals. And do you know MIDI has been around for decades? Almost yeah, it's really old, I isn't have. it? It's- and version two was only released like 5 years ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's one of those it's one of those protocols that was
1: just yeah. really well designed from exactly, day one. Exactly. Wow. And and but it really is a series of triggers. You know, you buy a MIDI keyboard, you buy a MIDI drum kit just because that's what musicians expect it to be. It doesn't have to be that at all. And through various tools, I have a Stream Deck in front of me, I have a MIDI keyboard in front of me, tools like Better Touch Tool on the Mac and then other things. I can basically jerry rig all of this to do whatever I want uh I could play music on my stream deck I could use my keyboard to write an email like it's all just triggers what you yeah, do with yeah. those triggers is up to the software really so there's actually when you talk about coding and music there is already this quite rich world around it and there's actually quite a lot you can hook up to things and programs like live take this to an extreme where you can use the, you know, the input of one thing as an output to another thing and, and all this sort of thing. And it's used a lot in live performances, but yeah. what you connect to each other. Is, is, it's really up to you. Uh, and tools like OBS also hook into this, this ecosystem as well. It's actually quite a fascinating world. There's a lot of it in Berlin as well. And this is something I was always interested in when I was younger. Uh, I was an Amiga fanboy when I was younger.
0: Oh! Oh! Wow! Yeah. <laughs> let, well, let, okay. So let, let me get let me get yeah. like let me get really obscure now, right? So if you had an Amiga, yeah, did you ever there was a there was a, a music program for it where you it was like uh, tracks where you would you would put in the notes at certain points in the
1: track. I think it was called MED, Music Editor. So yeah. I know exactly what it was called. Yeah, this is super weird. You've made me very happy because the program was called Octamed. Yes, that's the and one. I recently, uh, <laughs> I recently trashed an archive hard drive and had to pay a lot of money to get it recovered. And I thought, well, I've paid all this money, I should see what's on here now. Uh, and I found a whole bunch of my old music. Most of it I could open in GarageBand and Cubase because that's what I created it with. But some of it was much older, and was actually made in Octomed. Oh a wow, years ago. that's and amazing! Was amazing because they managed to do some trickery to the. Uh, to the, the sound chips to... They doubled the channels, wasn't it? You yeah. You ready for this kids? They doubled it to eight channels. Yay!
0: <laughs> crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> oh, I crazy. remember that. Yeah,
1: and, yeah, and yeah. So I went down this journey of figuring out if I could open these files and I haven't explored it fully yet, but um, it's quite hard to, to find a download of it that will run in an Amiga emulator. But at a certain point, someone made a Windows fork uh, and... You could.
0: There's a whole subculture of the, of this type yeah. of, of music composition style, right? Where but just, you just like you put in like, oh, F sharp happens at yeah. this time point in this channel, and it's this instrument. The, the uh, reason
1: you make me very happy is I've mentioned this software to many people and no one's ever heard of it. <laughs> the first person heard
0: of it. I, I spent, I spent a lot of, uh, you know, completely nerdy teenager in their bedroom, mucking about with that. Mostly so trying to, happy. mostly trying what, to reproduce what, Axel Foley and failing. What, once I've I,
1: recreated these, uh, these tracks, I will uh, let you know. And oh, wow. That's one, fabulous. Um, there was one actually quite a famous album I came across recently that was created with it. Uh, Wow, let me let me look it up so we can we can uh tie that up because we will uh, we'll leave people wondering what that was. Because what it's on key.
0: earth? Yeah, we're gonna have to put in links to this
1: stuff. Really um, well-known album that was made with it. Um, oh, where was it? Calvin Harris. Calvin Harris. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. There we go. Oh, well, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on the Amiga and all that world. Oh, I, I, I think it's 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 been done, but yes, because
0: <laughs> oh well, it doesn't matter. I, I obsessively do it again. Chris, let's wrap. Let's wrap on that. That is a high note, pun intended. To wrap on. Thank you so much. This has been fabulous, and um yeah, I'm I'm delighted as well. You just made my day. Uh, no <laughs> all righty. Take care, take care. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgeek.com/podcast subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work for even more read our newsletter you can subscribe at voxgeek.com/newsletter or follow our twitter at voxgeek thanks for listening catch you next time